This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Austin Campbell. Between my time working at Fidelity on money market funds and my passion for blockchain technology, I became obsessed with the idea of stablecoins. Stablecoins can serve as a means of payment and a store of value for transactions. They also act as the bridge between the traditional finance system and the digital world. After my interview with Mike Dudas, I asked who is the smartest person I could talk to about stablecoins. He instantly responded, you need to speak with Austin. And as you'll hear, I think he's right. Austin spent 15 years in traditional finance before managing $22 billion of stablecoin reserves for Paxos. Today, he is an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School and the managing partner at Zero Knowledge Consulting. In this conversation, Austin helps me break down the nuts and bolts of how stablecoins work. We also discuss the lessons crypto should learn from the traditional finance world and how the current U.S. regulatory crackdown will shape the ecosystem going forward. Please enjoy the Stablecoin Primer with Austin Campbell. Austin, thank you for joining me today. I'm happy to have you. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. The way this came together was I was asking Mike Dudas about who's the person he knows that's the most knowledgeable person in stablecoins. So he said, you have to talk to Austin. We got on the phone and it's just incredible, your career from traditional finance to alternative finance, hedge funds to crypto finance, being the head of portfolio manager at Paxos, you've had a unique purview of the different asset classes and regimes. And so I thought a fun place to start would be, I recently had a tweet that having a healthy disrespect for the past is a good thing. Having an absolute disdain is a path to ruin. And what I was pointing to is that coming from traditional finance as well, there's lots of problems with it, just like there is in every industry, but there's also lots of knowledge and wisdom that happens when people go through crises and they learn and they say, okay, we probably shouldn't do that again. Sometimes in crypto, I feel like there's a disdain for everything that's ever been built. And we just want to start with a white piece of paper as if we haven't been through monetary regimes or crises. And I thought it'd be a fun place to start based on your career to kind of give me your take on how you feel about that. So I would say one of the observations I've had about the crypto space in general is that crypto is a very multidisciplinary problem. And a huge amount of the energy so far has probably been overfitting specifically to the technological solutions of that space. And that is to say, I'm a relatively simple person, and I try to group things into two types of problems in crypto. One is, is this a technological problem? Or two, is it a core behavioral problem? Because the first one can change and change rapidly, and it's very amenable to tech solutions. The second one is largely unchanging, like our behaviors today as human beings in terms of how we respond to things, how we think about things, the actions we undertake are probably all but identical to people 10,000 years ago. For me, one of the things I've observed is in the finance space in particular, we have largely from 2008 most recently inherited a lot of lessons about how humans behave in moments of crises and how behavioral incentives cause people to act in economic systems Crypto is busy stepping on every single landmine that it can aggressively to learn those lessons by rejecting that knowledge, even if from a space that, let's be honest, a lot of crypto people don't like bankers. One thing based on your background, specifically with stablecoins, which is what we're going to talk about today, you get to brief the Federal Reserve and you also get to brief some of the biggest gamblers in the space. And I guess when you're talking about stablecoins or approaching them, let's take it from both lenses for the audience that maybe isn't as familiar with them of what is a stable coin? Why are they so important? Why is everyone from the Fed to the largest hedge funds thinking about this? So I would say a 
pretty simplistic definition of stable coins that I like is it's an instrument on chain or on any form of ledger, be it private or public, that tries to hold a one unit of currency stable value. So that could be a dollar, that could be a euro, that could be the yen. To me, I'm kind of agnostic as to the currency. And when you think about that principle, it tells you actually that stable coins are not really a novel invention other than the part about putting them on a blockchain. If I were just to describe, stepping a little bit back and zooming out, the process of I'm going to give you a dollar. You're going to take that dollar. You're going to hold on to it for me. And then at any point in the future, I can come back and ask for that dollar back from you. Yes, that's definitely a stable coin, but that's also a bank deposit. It's a money market fund. It's a stable value fund. When you look at the core form factor, and I say this all the time to policymakers and regulators, these aren't really new. And acting like it's some sort of disruptive, new, financially destructive innovation is basically to say like, hey, we think money market funds are evil. It's a somewhat confusing policy stance that I think, quite frankly, comes from some pretty broken discourse in the space. To the crypto people, I try to say roughly the mirror image of the same thing, which is to say, there are a lot of lessons about how those things work and don't work. I am pro-technological innovation, but kind of anti-financial innovation in the stablecoin space. That is to say, if you keep putting weird stuff underneath these as collateral, they're going to keep exploding. We learned that lesson over and over in finance. Like that's AAA securitizations in 2008, just in this case, calling it a stablecoin. So the lessons really do generalize. And I think what's important is being able to have enough knowledge about each space to face people on their own terms and understand their concerns, but then be able to just tell the truth. If we're creating a stable coin today, I agree with you at an abstraction. It looks like a bank deposit. It looks like a money market fund, but it sure doesn't seem to be built like that. There's smart contracting involved. There's weekend banks. So let's dive into a little bit more of how do you actually build a stable coin from scratch? And what are the things you need to do to get this off the ground? All right, let's step back and think about what a good stable coin will look at, because it's easy to build bad stable coins. Let's start with the idea of what do we do to build like a relatively functional, good stablecoin? And let's start in the fiat-backed world, because that's a little easier, I think, to start with. You're going to need a couple of things that are core components. One, you're going to need some sort of reserve fund or reserve account. That is to say, a stablecoin is typically backed by something. And we could argue about specifically what should be in there or what form it takes. But understand, you're going to need a reserve that's going to be specifically identifiable and filled with stuff that let's just say is largely non-objectionable as stable collateral. Two, you're gonna need not just a smart contract, but in the case of a fiat-backed stablecoin, a whole system behind the smart contract that also manages the traditional financial component of that. Because the core thing about a fiat-backed stablecoin is I need to live in a world where, Eric, you could bring me a dollar and I give you a token, or you could bring me a token and then I give you a dollar. So obviously, part of that exists on the blockchain. We'll call that the like above water part of the iceberg. But beneath the iceberg is all of the financial machinery for that to happen. So I need to receive a wire or an ACH or a bank deposit or something by RTP so that I have money and then I can mint a token. Or in reverse, I get a token and then I've got to send out like a traditional financial transaction. And so that is actually... I would say the more interesting part of fiat-backed stablecoins to me is that integration. You referenced the banking problem and we ended overnight. So put a pin in that for now. We'll come back to that. Because another thing I think you need for these to work properly is actually a guarantee of timely redemption. If you bring somebody a token and they're like, I'll get back to you in three months, that is not a stablecoin as we think about it. You're going to need some sort of guarantee there. And ideally, you're going to have a legal and regulatory framework around these things that imposes the responsibilities for these things to work well and be transparent on the issuer. Because your worst nightmare as a stablecoin holder is when somebody doesn't have that on day one, you mint a stablecoin and you think it's backed by T-bills and then you wake up six months later and they've taken like a YOLO into Tesla stock levered or something like that. You need controls around the pool of assets and disclosure around them so that you know your stablecoin is, for lack of a better word, stable. So I would say, thinking conceptually, these are a lot of the elements you need to make a stablecoin work. 
What's hard about it, why do the fiat-backed ones have trouble, usually comes in one of two varieties. One, which we experienced when I was at Paxos, is just melding together a 24-7 always-on crypto system with the traditional banking system is actually a complicated problem. You're taking something that is very live and very quick and putting it on something that is extremely legacy. And as a result, managing the intermediation between those two is hard. There's a set of banks in the United States, the most two well-known of which in the crypto space are Silvergate and Signature, that run 24-7 internal ledgers. So what that means is if I have money deposited there and you have money deposited there, then outside of regular banking hours, we can clear a transaction between us with finality. Signature in particular is using a blockchain implementation for that, interestingly enough. But what this means is that at 3 a.m. New York time, I could mint $250 million of stable coins if we both had sufficient cash for somebody in Asia or somebody in Europe. Because one thing you don't want to do with a stable coin, pro tip for anybody who's going to be running one, is take contingent receivables. I can't be like, oh, I'll send a wire the next business day, or like, we sent you money, but it hasn't cleared yet. Because then if you mint the coins and you have a break, now your stablecoin loses its peg. You don't have enough assets backing the reserve. Or if you're going to do that, you need old excess capital in the reserve, such that if you have breaks, it's not a problem. This is back to like, why do banks hold capital in general? So that's a complicated little dance when you're making the stablecoin work. And when that breaks, what happens is you can't do instantaneous mint burn. That's not to say you don't have the money. But it's to say, I've got the money, but it's in the legacy banking system. So like, you have to come back during banking hours. So like nine to five New York time to get your money and you can replenish it then. But it causes these weekend and overnight breaks. The other area where there have been problems is with the actual reserve assets. That is to say, if I put an asset in there and I want it to be worth a dollar, it's going to be a real problem if it significantly goes down in value. It is not worth a dollar anymore. This has been, for a long time, for instance, the constant criticism about Tether, which is what's their reserve composed of and how do we know it's actually stable? So let's go through the different parts. They're all fascinating. On the reserve account, are those assets of the issuer? Who owns the reserve assets? Well, the answer to that in the current world is it depends. So if you were to look at Tether and Circle, I would tell you my opinion, and I'm not a lawyer. But as I read their terms and conditions, it's not clear to me whether those are bankruptcy remote assets or not, which is to say, if one of them, BKs, goes bankrupt, not to use financial jargon, then you're in a position where it may be the case that there are other creditors who can try to get that money back in addition to the people who own the stable coins. So it's not clear that you are the sole owner of the reserve or that it was customer money. This may just be corporate money that everybody's got a general claim against. And like in Circle's case in particular, it's complicated because they have this BlackRock fund that itself looks like a 40-act-style fund. It's bankruptcy remote, but the sole owner of that fund is Circle Financial LLC, as best I can tell. And wait, if I'm in the stablecoin, aren't I facing Circle? Like, they've just never done a great job of disclosing that. There are other coins out there, so like GUSD, BUSD, and USDP being the main ones under NYDFS regulation, where those are limited purpose trust companies in New York, holding those assets for the benefit of the customers. So if you were to look at the underlying accounts at Paxos or at Gemini, I would assume, the stablecoin reserves are labeled FOBO, customers of BUSD, customers of USDP, customers of GUSD. And it is my expectation that in a bankruptcy, those would go back to the coin holders in full. Now, I say my expectation because a bankruptcy judge can always decide to do something crazy. But as a general statement, that regulatory framework is intended to identify those as discrete pools that are the property of the customers. There's a bankruptcy remoteness to the assets themselves. There's what the assets are. Let's do the mechanics part. On the 24-7, the interplay between stable coins and banks, I'm super fascinated by that. I guess my first question is, when Silvergate and Signature and whoever else did this, did banks ever do this type of behavior? Do they, they have to go go to the Fed and be like, hey, we're going to keep our banks open on the weekends? Was this a big deal or something that happened? I was just never aware that banks could do business on the weekends. So it's not that the entire bank is over. Silvergate runs a payments network called SEN and Signature has Signet. So if you are a customer of those implementations, you have 24-7 services. 
And it's not open in the traditional sense of a bank. That is to say, I can't send a wire from Signature at 2 a.m. or on a weekend. Fedwire is not open. What I can do is transact with legal finality with other customers who have cash on deposit at Signature. So that's the key point. To be part of Signet, everybody's got cash deposits at Signature. So when you heard about Signature being a big player in the crypto space, a lot of what was happening was just them holding cash to facilitate 24-7-7. So those are, in many ways, operating deposits. And then does that money belong to the owners of the token, or is that the issuer's capital being placed at those banks sitting there on the weekend to handle this problem? If it were Circle or Paxos, as best I'm aware, no, that is reserves from the token themselves. Because if somebody is minting or burning, for the most part, you're leaving the reserves there. There's probably a little bit of capital for each of those firms that's their own, but nowhere near the amount of deposits. If you looked at Paxos's uh, reserve disclosures, they had anywhere in the hundreds of millions to about a billion dollars of cash at various points. That's not just Paxos's money sitting there. That is from the tokens. And you can see in the transparency reports that Paxos publishes, which I helped author, that's fully disclosed as part of the reserve. I mean, Circle at one point had 13 billion of cash sitting in places. I'm willing to bet Circle doesn't have 13 billion of cash on hand as capital. That's clearly money of the token holders hanging out at those places. So in those cases, you are taking risk that one of those banks fails if you've got your deposits there. So as a way to think about it, I'm going to use simple numbers for myself. I have a billion dollar stable coin. I'm going to take 900 million of it. I'm going to go buy some T-bills, keep them rolling. So I feel safe about that. I'm going to hold those. And then I'm going to take a hundred million or 10% of my fund because I've looked at some sort of like historical redemption behavior over the weekend. And I'm going to park a hundred million as signature in Silvergate, just as unsecured basic cap deposits there. So that if I show up as a hedge fund and I'm like, hey, I bought a hundred million of this stable coin. I want a hundred million USD. The issuer is like, that's good because I had some here. If it ever went over that number, then you have fear of the peg maybe going off. Is that fair? If it goes over that number, you're like in the classic sort of overnight repo world of problems, which is to say, I still have the cash. Remember those 900 million of T-bills that we just talked about in this example? Just I can't give them to you right now. You have to wait until I go sell them, which will be the next business day, settle them, which might be a business day after that, and then give you the cash. So you end up in a world where things could be settling T plus one or T plus two, as opposed to instantaneous. And so I would say there's two types of peg problems in crypto, and it's important for crypto natives to understand this part. Type one is the reserves are there, but we can't get them to you instantaneously. In that case, while in theory, things should depeg, they shouldn't depeg big if you know what those assets are and those assets are credit worthy. And in that case, not financial advice, but if they do, the trade to do is to buy the token at a discount and just wait the three or four days to get it redeemed. If you can make five points doing that, you do that all day, every day. On the other hand, is peg stability worries that are based around weight, are there actually reserves? So in my fiat world, if instead of 900 million, in this case of T-bills, I owned 900 million of commercial paper, and let's say it's 2008, you know, 100 million of that commercial paper is Lehman, yeah, we may have a big problem, right? And that's not one that's going to self-heal with time. That's a different variety of problem than purely the liquidity one, where it's like, look, I can sell some T-bills. Like the Lehman paper is now just permanently worth less. So to some extent, that is the difference in problems that you see with Binance halting USDC and BUSD redemptions temporarily overnight at one point, and then unsurprisingly resuming as soon as you get back to like New York banking hours versus, say, UST and the complete collapse of that. How often does that happen where you miscalculate how much you need in the traditional banking system where you have these draws that are really the banking system and the 24-hour nature kind of falling out of sync? Not necessarily any nefarious behavior. You went and bought a bunch of Tesla with it. How often does that happen where the market just spikes and the issuer is like, oh man, I just don't have enough collateral. I'll give you treasuries in C plus one. I would say as a starting point, I think calculate overspecifies how good you can be at that. That is to say, you're making a prediction there and predictions are hard to make, especially about the future. 
So what happens is you're always looking at stress scenarios and potential needs, and you're trying to budget for the efficient frontier of, I want to have enough liquidity to fulfill instantaneous demand at most times. But I also don't want to just leave all my money there because I am running credit risk to these banks. And you're probably less in interest than you are in elsewhere, too. So there's a push-pull in terms of safety versus efficiency. So I would say at the time I was at Paxos, once or twice, right over the course of about a year, when things get really crazy, especially with people burning stable coins, it will happen once in a while. But you're probably better erring on the side of safety of the reserves versus liquidity, if that's the trade-off you're making, and just telling people, like, we've got the money, keep your pants on, it'll be a day. Well, that's what I was thinking is it kind of got to this next question of, is there a ballpark range of like what stablecoin issuers keep in this bank? Because while I can see the wonderful part of the 24-7 liquidity, I don't love the credit risk component of like, both I need to keep it there so I don't spook people, right? Because I need to leave the money at the bank, but that's credit risk. So I'm not thrilled about it. I'd rather own those T-bills. But if you want your money Saturday at 3 a.m. or Tuesday at 2 a.m. for that matter, you need to do this to make this all work. How much of stablecoin funds end up in the banks to wait for this need? So at Paxos, for us, it was single-digit percentage points. Depending on the regime we were in, could be lower, it could be higher. In really high volatility periods, we would probably you know, estimate for a little more liquidity than not. But like single-digit percentage points, I would tell you, having read their transparency reports, if I'm reading it correctly, I think Circle has historically been more than Paxos was. So they may have been, you know, as high as 20-ish percent at some points. But I would say it's not obvious to me in that space there is a correct answer. It is a question of trade-offs and what you are managing for. So that's not to imply one is like strictly better at all times than the other. Like you're making trade-offs. That's why I find it such an interesting problem. You could have zero at the banks and say we're always going to settle in banking hours. I don't know if anyone's ever tried that, but hypothetically, you could run a stable coin that got rid of instantaneous liquidity and said this is a money market fund that doesn't pay interest, but rides on crypto rails will be available when the banks are available, right? And then you have zero. Depending on how you read it, Europe might have gone with a little bit of that logic and like the MICA legislation for stable coins, which to me is interesting because I think having some degree of instant liquidity is probably important. I want to see how that evolves on the mainland there. I've chit-chatted with somebody who's a researcher looking at that. And I think, you know, if you're in a mainland European bank, you can't get other crypto counterparties on board. Because here's the other part. It takes two to trade. So like if I have this money at a bank, but nobody wants to mint or burn can bank there, it doesn't matter. You're on an island with no connections. So you need both sides of the ecosystem. And then you need it 24-7, not for small payments, but at scale. Quite frankly, nobody cares about 25K. They care about 100 million. We may get that experiment run live. It'll be interesting if they do. Maybe that also is helpful is what are examples of why people need to move $100 million on a weekend? Crypto markets, unfortunately, are 24-7. When prices move around, especially prices of native crypto assets, we're talking about Bitcoin, ETH, Sol, whatever you want. People want to be able to trade that stuff. And what do you trade it for when all of the trading pairs are based on stable coins? Well, that's the raw material to make that work, especially when you also see them in DeFi all the time. So you can think of this as people either deploying dry powder if they want to be minting coins on the weekend so they can go do these things, or if they really think the system is getting janky, taking their money out of it entirely. Now, I think depending on the stable coin, that's probably a little bit panicky. Knowing, for instance, how we did things at Paxos, I don't really feel any worse holding like BUSD on the ETH chain than I do like having a bank account or a money market fund. But when people get scared, they just get scared and throw everything overboard. That's, again, one of those lessons you learn in traditional finance. I've been there. Yeah, we've definitely seen that in 08. When one thing broke, everyone assumed everything was broken and you were dead until proven alive. Exactly. So let's move that to the regulators. I think that you've been critical of regulators like everyone, but you've also been kind to try to explain the predicament they're in and how they try to handle this. Because I can imagine if I'm a regulator and this is not what I do 24-7, and I remember the reserve fund, and I remember Lehman, and I remember how bad things happen when money markets or short-term assets go under risk. The first thing I'd be concerned about is the banks are doing what now on the weekends? That just seems like I don't want that. 
getting into this again, and then boom, it's a problem. So why don't you give a perspective of the regulators, the challenges they face, and your advice to them? I would start by saying, one, full transparency for all listeners. I have some personal friends in the regulatory space in the United States, some of whom are decently senior. And I will also reveal my bias by saying, for the overwhelming majority of them, I think pretty highly of them. And I would tell you, they largely have a completely fucking impossible job, if we're being reasonable as to how this really plays out. Because the thing to understand is if you're in a regulator, one, these people are dramatically underpaid. It's actually real bad. You could publicly find the salaries for the CFTC and the SEC. But I will tell you that I had years at JP Morgan on a trading desk where either I or people I sat next to made 10 times what we pay an SEC or CFTC commissioner. That's mental. They were paid about the same as like the analysts, which is first year, second year people. So you're underpaid, you're under-resourced, you don't have all the expertise you need, you cannot get the best people. If I can give, by the way, one piece of advice to legislators about crypto, it's actually just pay your regulators enough that you can hire experts to actually handle this stuff well. The handful of countries in the world that do that, like say Singapore, tend to do much better at this stuff when new technology comes along. But with that said, in those seats, you're primarily thinking first and foremost about safety, soundness, and consumer protection. So one thing to understand is that regulators in general are not pro-innovation because innovation disrupts things, it breaks things, it causes problems. They've been given marching orders and the things they are told to do that will give them a slightly anti-innovation skew. And that's important for people to remember. Number two is that for them to trust you, you need to have credibility. And credibility comes by doing the right thing, even when it's hard, over time. And crypto transparently deserves about an F minus minus for that. For a space that supposedly is about reinventing money for the good of all and open access and financially inclusion, boy, there's a lot of people stealing everybody's money. So if a regulator were looking at that from the outside, they'd just be like, so I hear all these things you're saying, but like, didn't SBF just steal everybody's money? And before that, it was hackers. And before that, it was Do Kwan and, you know, Mount Gox. And like, as you travel back through time, zero credibility. And then three, exactly as you said, there's been a lot of problems of understanding the differences between technology, ecosystems, and like where things fit. Just drawing the basic comparisons has been very hard. And this is actively not helped by crypto being terrible about understanding the traditional financial ecosystem, so they're not bilingual. And then two, one of my personal pet peeves, just reusing words that already have fixed meanings, like the borrow-lend protocols calling themselves money market protocols drives me nuts. Guys, there's like four to five trillion, with a T, dollars of money market funds in the world. And by the way, if you want to get served by the SEC, call yourself a money market protocol because that's got a specific meaning and they will come look. Things like this, I think, have just made it a really toxic dialogue. So with all of that said, I think the job of the regulators has been impossible, but they also transparently have not done a great job of it. If you look at the actual outcomes-based result, we missed FTX, we missed Celsius, we missed BlockFi, we missed Voyager, we missed Luna. And now we're going around punishing Kraken and Paxos, who didn't really lose anybody's money. It also puts you in a situation where if you're a responsible CEO or head of a project, you want to do the right thing, and you're trying to grow and deploy your business with known rules, probably the biggest mistake you could have made over the past five years is being a US-regulated company. So it's just become kind of degenerative on all sides. And I think to fix it, we're going to need one, clean legislation. Two, the crypto community has got to do a better job of self-policing and communicating with the regulators who want to be constructive with you. And then three, the regulators do need to take a step back and I think improve on the education side and understanding the space. So rather than just lashing out at anything they see, they can identify the real problems and go after those. That sounds ideal, but unrealistic currently. I think what you say makes all the sense in the world that it needs to be more self-policing and people need to understand it. But it does feel like we're at this 
dangerous inflection point, probably driven by SPF and his political donations and the amount of people that are regulators and politicians that have egg on their face related to maybe some of that components of it. But I don't know if you saw Nick's piece on this Operation Choke Point, but it does certainly feel like lots of things are being closed on at once. And rightfully so, right? Like we saw this after 08. Lots of legislation, although hard to craft, was necessary and did need to happen. I think my experience was that was huge legal bills on both sides hashing out how it might look in the future with an urgency, like we're going to regulate this, so you're going to have to agree. Here it feels like crypto might be so hobbled from the downturn, it doesn't have the legal heft to kind of sit at the table. I'm not totally sure. I don't know if it's just a educational component. Full transparency, I contributed a little bit to that article with Nick. I think he did a very good job of writing it, documenting it, though. That I think is a good document for anybody who wants to read it to understand what's going on with banking rails. I think where the regulators are because of the inaction of legislators and the inability of most people in crypto to work constructively with them is they're left with their only option in the United States being like, let's just try to kick these people out. Because if I can't effectively regulate the projects and the same bad behaviors keep recurring, the next best thing I can do is just choke off all access to it. And that's what they're trying to do from a banking perspective. I agree that's not ideal. But again, back to the regulatory job being hard, I'm not sure they've been presented with materially better options right now than that. If you go back to like my core mandate being consumer protection. So that is where I say we need legislation, we need more education. And quite frankly, the crypto community, like here's a great example. If you have people who were running a hedge fund that blew up, that lied about their exposures, and then rather than help creditors in a bankruptcy proceeding fled to non-extradition jurisdictions, maybe don't fund their next project. If you want to have credibility with regulators, just saying, not to name any names. But this is the sort of conduct that as it continues will become increasingly toxic. And all you're going to do is empower people who want to centralize these things and take it away from the average person to do exactly that. You're creating the future that you were trying to avoid with this sort of behavior as a community. So I do put at least a decent amount of the blame on these people. Like, If your view is that all regulators are strictly evil, you leave them no room to work with you. And I will tell you on a personal basis, maybe that's true of a handful of them, but it's not of the majority. What would you say of your experience in the crypto space? What percentage of people do you think hold that belief that this is an anarchist, regulators are bad, and it's better to disengage versus are looking to find some way to work with them positively? And more in the powerful seats, like you guys are at the head of Paxos, like leaders in the space, what are they trying to do? So I would say that answer may be changing with regard to U.S. versus non-U.S. regulators. So let me start with non-U.S., I would say if you look at legislation recently, like it's not perfect, but Europe passed MICA, and I think it's an honest attempt, so I applaud them for that. The UK has obviously gotten much more constructive, like His Majesty's Treasury, it still sounds weird to say his, has recently put forward a framework for bringing crypto assets into the financial system there. Singapore has obviously worked on a lot of things, I think very highly of the work of the MAS, and would like to give a shout out to them for what they've done. Hong Kong is getting more constructive, Vera over in Dubai. So I think there are a lot of people outside the US that people are happy to engage with that seem to be doing constructive things. And I think there's starting to be a greater union between the good actors and those people to get some constructive things done. I think in the United States, part of the problem we have is what appears to be a combination like major perf war with the SEC essentially attempting to assert it's the regulator for all things at all times at all places, which is a little bit problematic. And then on the other hand, the banking regulators being a bit hobbled and that they really only touch the banking part of the thing and they haven't gotten clear guidance from Congress on what they're supposed to do with it. So they finally just said, all right, well, after X number of years of this nonsense, our answer is no until we're told otherwise. Speaking of that, of the SEC and the kind of the surf war, last week was a bit of a crazy week. I've been studying qualified custodians probably for the past seven months of my life. And suddenly there was news and tremors that it was all going to change. And there was a proposed rule that's 434 pages. I've actually read it. And I think there were some surprising parts. One was that the SEC came out and said, essentially, they're in charge of all assets. I'm being a bit hyperbolic, but there's a sentence in there that says that the qualified custodian rules, as the way I read it, 
whether it was artwork, land, or real estate, lumber, or actually like quoted, I believe it was corn, but another commodity was quoted. Technically, if I'm a manager of assets and I want to hold those and run a strategy, I need to use a qualified custodian. And so I think the part that kind of stunned me was, okay, we have these securities. We know what we do with those. We've got this new thing called non-securities. We know that some crypto, like at least Bitcoin is, and the SEC wants coverage over it. But in order to get that, they needed to say, hey, we're in charge of all non-securities, including art as kind of an extreme example. Did you find that a bit surprising? As somebody who's been in the alternative asset space, I know this is a crypto podcast, but the implications of this in non-crypto might be bigger than crypto. The idea that you need a qualified custodian, which has like specific meaning for things like art or lumber or like rare automobiles is interesting. I'm not totally sure how it's going to work. So I would tell you, I think the implications of this reach far beyond crypto. In terms of crypto, I think this is exactly what I mean about the regulatory confusion in the United States, is that the exact time the SEC is telling you all of this activity needs to be with a qualified custodian, typically those have been banks. The banking regulators are being like, no, we're done with this stuff. Like, no. So they're killing all the qualified custodians. So like, wait, what? Did we just ban crypto because our regulators can't work with each other or talk to each other or because our legislators won't do something? And this is why I do think in the U.S. is you have more confusion like that. People are getting less constructive. Like, I'm just going to say on, on this one, I can't name names. I do consulting work for some pretty major companies in this space and some advisory work. The refrain I'm hearing a lot is, hey, let's just leave the U.S. And I would tell you that's not a good position to be in. You don't want a nascent, growing, important technological innovation to move entirely offshore. Because the problem you're going to have is even if you fix it later on, there's no guarantee they come back if other people are treating them well. So things like what the SEC is doing of just asserting jurisdiction over anything that's got a vowel in the name, basically, these are not constructive in the current state of affairs. If you want to do that as the SEC, you should probably also spell out a pathway for actually achieving it. Because regulating by saying you must do X and then not giving a pathway to actually do it is a ban. You're just not being intellectually honest about saying it. So it was a busy week, but it was also a busy week for Paxos and the headline. And I know that this is a sensitive area. So the audience, I appreciate you even talking about what you can, but tell us what at least the headline was, what happened and what you can share about the BUSD. Full transparency. I am not at Paxos anymore. So I am observing these things as an outsider, but I would say it's important to understand, and this is back to regulatory confusion in the U.S., two separate things are happening with Paxos. So one of those is that they got what's called a Wells notice from the SEC. Shorthand for that is basically that the SEC thinks there may have been a violation and intends to investigate, possibly pursue enforcement action. That appears, based on Paxos's own public statements, to be around BUSD, which would imply that the SEC thinks BUSD is somehow a security. Now, I haven't seen and it hasn't been publicly disclosed what the exact reasoning behind that is. But usually when you're a security, there are a lot of different tests. Howie is the most notable one that you have to fit into. Some of them are pretty broad, though. So one way or another, the SEC is alleging with that kind of notice this thing should be governed by securities laws, which requires registration, restrictions on trading, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, you can't use it as a stable coin is what I would say the shorthand is. Now, important to note, Wells notices are just statements of intent, if you will. Nothing formal has happened. You can and do discuss them. It is not a guarantee of anything, either good or bad. So in terms of response, Paxos's actions around BUSD, I would suggest, are not in response to the SEC. But the implication that all stablecoins are potentially securities, that would be problematic. The second part is that the NYDFS has been involved with Paxos and is displeased one way or another with their handling of BUSD. It appears to materially be around the connection to Binance. And the fact that BUSD was only ever authorized by the NYDFS on the Ethereum chain. Other people began bridging it elsewhere in the ecosystem. And so Binance started doing it themselves over centralized bridges. There's been a lot of confusion at the DFS, I can say, but elsewhere as well, about what is this wrapped thing that's on like the Binance smart chain versus what is this ETH thing? And like, again, back to the 
How do we have technological sophistication? How do we have adequate monitoring? How do we know they're not minting this thing out of thin air as opposed to having it locked in a reserve contract? And I would say my knowledge at the time was nobody's perfect. This is a fast moving space. I'm pretty certain like Binance had some operational teething around that, but I never personally saw them minting billions of dollars of undacked stuff or anything like that. But I think it came to a head with the DFS, especially with all the scrutiny around crypto in general. This becomes a time when a banking regulator who has sweeping powers can really just use anything they want as a pretext to act. So they're basically, my understanding is forcing Paxos to shut down BUSD, which is to say all the money is still there, but you can't mint new BUSD. And over time, you're probably going to have to redeem it all or transition it to something else. How many stable coins does Paxos run? Three, depending on how you classify it. So when people say stable coins, if you mean the dollar-backed ones, it was USDP and BUSD. If you also include the gold token, it would be three, and that's PAXG. I saw the headlines, and it seemed like the Wells notice was related to BUSD, but not USDP. Does that suggest you, this might be too much reading between the tea leaves, that the SEC isn't saying all stable coins are securities? They're saying something specifically happened with Binance that they're unsure about? Maybe. Keep in mind, getting one Wells notice is not a guarantee you will not get future Wells notices or that other people won't get them. Back to the regulator thing, the SEC's only got so much bandwidth. There's not 28,000 lawyers at the SEC who can chase all these things at once. To me, looking from the outside, there's three potential layers of arguments. One is just, hey, anything backed by securities is a security. That would obviously implicate all fiat-backed stablecoins. That would have back to the SEC claiming regulation over everything, implications for all sorts of downstream assets and basically the entirety of the insurance market. So that would be an interesting play, but that's not to say it won't happen. Two is that they think there's something specific in a commercial arrangement between Paxos and Binance. It might be hard to separate that from, say, an arrangement between Circle and Coinbase, though. So that might imply at least one other thing is a security. The third one would be that because Binance was paying interest on BUSD on their platform, it's a security. But again, go look in your Coinbase account, you get an APY on USDC there right now. So I find it hard to believe personally that there's something specific only to BUSD that would not touch any other stable coin. So I would think if the SEC is going to do a thorough job and really means what they're saying, you're going to find out that other stable coins are considered securities as well. I forget what it was. Last year feels like 20 years in one, but when Binance consolidated its stable coins, I think you used to be able to use USDC and USDT and BUSD. Yeah. Auto conversion is what they called it. Yeah. That felt odd to me. And there was lots of fun people saying, oh my God, this is a big deal. What's going on here? Do you have any views on that? And is that in any way related to fears over something happening to their stable coin? I would say if you look at what they did with auto conversion, they basically had people depositing all these different stable coins on their platform. So they had Tether, USDC, BUSD, USDP, TUSD, you name it, you get one. And this creates two problems from the perspective of an exchange. One, it fragments all your liquidity, which is super annoying. Two, if you think some of these things are less safe and sound than others, you'd kind of not want to have them on your exchange. So if I had done an internal risk analysis and said, I trust the Paxos framework around BUSD more than USDC or TUSD, you would auto-convert just to protect your users. Especially to go back to a point we raised earlier, when you know with certainty the limited purpose trust model in New York means those are customer assets and bankruptcy remote, you may not know that about some of the other models. That's probably a pretty consumer protective maneuver. I don't think it's coincidental that although they picked BUSD, obviously, because it's theirs, they worked with Paxos to design BUSD in the way they did. The one they didn't do it with was Tether, but my understanding is that's just that Tether is so damn ubiquitous. There was kind of no way to get that out in a meaningful fashion, right? You'd be killing, what, over 80% of your total stablecoin volume? It's probably just not commercially feasible. It just seems to me. I don't like thinking like, oh, this is also weird or coincidental. But it sure feels like there's a lot of stuff circling around Binance particular that people are then picking up as signal for other things. And I think I'm trying to separate the noise and the signal part about how much of this is a U.S. regulatory response to whatever potential concerns they may have versus specifically impacting how stablecoins and securities will be structured in the future. Certainly, there's regulatory concern about Binance in the United States. 
a lot of U.S. regulators are like, we missed FTX as Binance the next FTX. It's easier to just assume yes and act. Two, I would say at least some of these actions are probably precursors or leading edges of greater regulatory action. The NYDFS pulling back on BUSD, for instance, I find to be incredibly consumer destructive, which should tell you something about the fact that there's probably a real U.S. effort to constrict access to crypto. Because who's been the biggest winner from this whole BUSD action? It's been Tether. And I dare anybody with a straight face in the regulatory world to come to me and be like, hey, Axos under the NYDFS in this regulatory structure that's extremely clean, far less safe than Tether. It's just not credible. So that tells you they have some other reason for doing it. And it's one of those things where we don't have a choice in the regulatory world between, yes, well-designed stablecoins and no stablecoins. It's, yes, well-designed stablecoins or, yes, stuff offshore that's not terribly well-regulated. And I think that maybe has been lost in the current debate. What would you say is some of the silver linings of your discussion with regulators? I mean, it's obviously a reactionary time. It makes sense. My hope is that if we can get to good forms of regulation or things that are workable, then good actors will be able to play. Because I've always felt like it's hard to say that it's a gray area and there's no rules and anyone can do anything. And then when bad things happen, be like, well, that's them, not me. Whereas if there's rules and you go through them, even though bad things still happen, firm believer, you will have financial crises and they'll look different than the last. It does feel like regulatory structure, to me at least, and maybe it's background based. I'm like, I think that's necessary. It's good to have this. And this stuff, to your point, it always gets written after the last crisis and people start saying, everyone's been looking for the last Lehman for the past 15 years. It's like, this is the next Lehman. And now likewise, you're looking for the next FTX. So I guess on the regulatory front, are there parts that you're optimistic about or is it pure doom and gloom for the US on the regulatory front for the next couple of years? I'm pretty pessimistic on the US. I think to solve this problem, we're going to require legislative action. And in our current legislative framework, I'm just not sure that will happen. With that said, I'm pretty optimistic globally on regulation. A lot of other regulators have really started to embrace this challenge at the time the US has essentially just tried to kick it out of the country. Ironically, that may be good for US consumers in the long run is that as long as good products get built, and you can use them. They don't necessarily have to be in the United States when they were built. I think that's bad from an economic perspective. It's probably bad from a geopolitical power perspective, but it might be positive for consumers over time. So I'm not bearish on regulation for crypto in general. I'm just bearish on the US, which is to say, unless Congress really wants to take this head on and lay down some rules of the road as to how this debate's going to proceed, it's pretty dysfunctional right now. And just like 2008, it's going to take years to sort that out. The reality was, even with Dodd-Frank being passed, we're literally still doing Dodd-Frank implementation. Like today, it's 2023, guys. These things happen in like dinosaur terms and ages. For me, as I look at it, I'm still very optimistic on the space. I'm very optimistic on the technology. I'm probably pretty bearish on both US regulation and the super majority of existing current projects. But just like 2000 did not end the internet, this is not going to end crypto or anything like that. I think the part that's harder for me to get my head around is what I hear, like the regulation globally is better than the US and we're just going to move offshore. Is that the United States have the largest, most thriving financial markets in the world for a reason, rule of law being a big one and large market participants. Maybe it's this huge sea change where suddenly the US is going to start to lose some of that power, possibly. But it's also so interesting to me that like when we talk about this, even stable coins, how many stable coins are not quoted in US dollar terms as a percentage? Like this is the dollarization of the world. It's very small, like single digit percentage points, and that's mostly euro. But counterpoint, a lot of the US being in that situation is path dependency. That is to say, especially in the post-World War II regime, we were the country that built all that stuff. I would tell you there are other places in the world whose legal regimes and protections can be adequate to just as good as the United States only because they weren't the market. So long as you don't fumble it when you're the one who has that, you retain it. I just worry that we're now in the process of fumbling it because the U.S. was not always the dominant global market. If you go back to like the 1700s, it's not us. 
this isn't something we're just going to retain forever for no reason. You have to earn it. That's very fair. Let's talk about more of a future outlook of what you can do with this technology with like stable coins and the positives of even though the next time we might be interviewing from Singapore or another country. I guess a couple of things that intrigue me is you mentioned it with paying interest, paying rewards, kind of how these people try to dance around this point that, I mean, one thing we didn't address with stable coins, which is fascinating to me, is in a money market fund, that really was, if you go back to that, a massive disruption to bank deposits. And it was considered completely risky and was going to destroy the banks because the banks were like, we don't want anyone to compete with our depository institutions. But money markets take your money, you get a dollar, and then they pay you interest. With stable coins, you give them a dollar and they give you a token and there's no interest involved. Explain how this is part of securities law and if there's any interesting thoughts of how people could figure out how to handle this. Well, I was going to say a lot of that has been driven by regulators protecting consumers from earning profits, which is something I find particularly annoying in the United States. Rule of thumb, when an industry lobbies against something because it disrupts their current business model, you probably want to encourage that thing, not discourage it. Didn't we just spend a decade trying to solve the problem of too big to fail banks, and now we're trying to make them bigger by restricting competition? Doesn't make any sense. But with that said, yeah, paying interest on a stable coin is one of the ways to probably turn the thing into a security unless you're in some other form of regulatory regime in the United States. I would have told you three months ago, well, the obvious thing to do is start a bank, have the bank only take deposits and put those in T-bills and just tokenize the deposits. That's a stable coin. But the banking regulators have made pretty clear they're not going to tolerate that right now. So I would say what I expect for the stable coin space is ultimately you're going to see, because there's good legislation emerging elsewhere, an offshore stable coin that pays interest and just works properly. And that's what I mean by the US kind of fumbling. There's going to be a better offshore version of Tether that pays interest, that is well-regulated, transparent, properly disclosed, all those things. And it's just going to work properly. Because as an investment proposition, like, let me pitch something to all the VCs who are listening to this, okay? Here's how this is going to work. You're going to give me money. I'm going to take that money. I'm going to go do a bunch of cool stuff with it. I'm going to earn a bunch of profits. And then I'm going to give you back only your original money. Who wants to fund me? <laughs> Obviously not. But that's what the current stable coins are. They keep all of the interest. So with rates going back up, this will get solved. The commercial pressure to solve it is immense. Or stable coins will stop being a thing. It's one of those two. So I think it's going to get solved. I just think you may have frameworks offshore that solve it faster than onshore. Onshore, we probably need legislative reform to make that thing work properly. Why hadn't we seen it offshore in the past? SPF's using the Bahamian SEC. I'm sure a country would have been happy to take the money to try this. I've just been curious why no one has done a interest-paying stablecoin in the past. Well, until about a year ago, it's purely an academic discussion because an interest-paying stablecoin implies the existence of interest. So when you go from 2008 to basically a year or so ago of zero rates or close to zero rates, who cares? I'm not going to do all of this brain damage to usurp circle to pay you five basis points or like whatever the number would be. But when the Federal Reserve has suddenly woken up and gone, oh my God, inflation, and now we're going to be looking at 4 to 5% rates, I personal opinion, probably for a lot longer than people think, if you look at the history of fighting inflation, like what happened here in the 70s, then you're going to need to find a way to solve this. Before, there was just no money in it, so like, why not? What's your take on other assets using either the crypto rails? Like One of the things I got as a bond guy is... If you're in the bond world, you're already a geek anyways, but if you figure out the life of a bond from how it gets issued to an offering statement to bankers, to underwriting, to trading, to settlement, to back office, to DTC, to all the redundant systems, it blows your mind that one of the largest markets in the world still operates in this way, but it has for quite some time. So it's obvious that settling on a centralized ledger would be a superior option. However, it never intrigued me because I thought of all of those steps along the way make people money. The entrenched interests are so big. It is interesting. And so seeing stable coins kind of break this way because there was so much demand for them is kind of the first point of, I can see it. What's your take on traditional assets using some sort of centralized ledger or settlement? I do think that's coming. Like 30, 40 years forward, I think the majority of financial assets will probably be on blockchains one way or another. It's just these things take longer than people think. Technological transformation of markets is not a fast process. In terms of low-hanging fruit, 
T-bills are an obvious one. There's groups like Ondo Finance working on that already. A properly constructed stablecoin is probably just a government money market fund. Those kinds of things, I think, will be explicable and easier to get on chain. After that, I would suspect the next generation of stuff probably comes from the other direction, which is to say, some of the problems we still have from 2008 are things like Herstadt risk, like overnight risk in FX markets, or when you're looking at like OTC derivative settlements and things where having transaction finality rapidly in a system that you can observe is not currently really there. So that's a way to bring a lot of counterparty credit and margin risk out of the system. So I think we're going to see a lot of those things get tokenized purely because there's a large economic benefit to doing so, even to the entrenched incumbents. Then I think you're at both ends of the snake and you're eating inwards to get to like the middle, which is probably things like corporate bonds and equities, where the marginal improvement of going to a blockchain is low relative to the current system. That's not to say it's zero, but it's lower. And it's not immediately obvious to consumers in a simple way like a T-bill or a stablecoin is, nor is it the most relevant thing for the institutional guys, because although they don't love it, the current system kind of sort of works. So I think that's probably the actual path of travel, in my opinion, is look for where the pain points are and assume people will try to solve those first because there's real value to do. That's a really interesting take on it. I mean, I think that that's probably one of the hardest parts of fixed income markets is it impacts everyone's life. No one just knows about it because it's not on CNBC and it's boring and it's the backbone stuff. They talk about equities. Nobody wants to talk about $2 trillion of overnight repo rolling every day, even though I don't know, funds the entire banking system. I think it's such a fascinating market just because so many things are on it. And so I see all these opportunities when people like this kind of gets into some of the people ranting about utility cases with technology. I can see it. It just ends to your point. Like, are we talking 20 years or 30 years or how long away are we from such a thing? Another hedge fund I was talking to had a great example. They were trying to find ways to explain this value, the point you're saying of like, why would someone do it? They were trying to explain Fannie Mae mortgage-backed security pools to someone in their mortgage. And it was close, but I'm like, man, you're going to lose them in the first five words of going through this one. Like, it was close. I understand what you're trying to say. The actual cost of a mortgage is X. And when you, Mr. Pay It, you pay Y, you're paying 2% more than you should. Do you understand that? And if you took out all these intermediaries, perhaps you could have a lower mortgage rate. So maybe we'll see it in places like that. I feel like I'm less optimistic about seeing it in the near future. I agree with the lack of optimism about that being in the very near future. I would agree with that. I think if you want a good read on how long these things take, you need to go talk to people who have actually done digital transformation of financial markets previously, and they will tell you, yo, slow it down. Your timeframes are way too aggressive. I'm lucky in that one of the people I know from JP Morgan is this woman named Alice. She's amazing. One of the best people in finance I've ever met. And she had worked on transformation of FX markets from paper tickets to electronic trading. And like these things are not quick. They're very complicated. And you have to make sure not to break stuff along the way. So I would tell everybody, again, back to crypto, not having learned the lessons of the past. If you're not talking to people who have already done this in financial markets, you're missing a lot of what you're going to need to do to make it work properly. Yeah, it's so funny. When I started the Muni Bond Group, there was a thing called The Notebook. It was a digital sheet that showed you all the streaming quotes. But the reason was, I don't know, 15 years ago, it was a notebook. People wrote down quotes in a notebook and traders passed around a notebook to understand where bonds were quoted. The uh, third or fourth largest reinsurance agreement that I've ever dealt with, I was given a paper copy with like hand annotated notes on the thing. And that was the actual legal record. So again, the transformation of markets is a gradual and group consensus process. You cannot do it by coming in as a disruptive incumbent with no network effects because markets are two-sided and require other people to trade with you or act with you. It's a very different mentality than creating a tech startup to displace like a social media company where you could just make your own. To make your own DTCC, you need to get all of the people who are currently trading with DTCC onto your platform with those securities. That's a very different problem. Absolutely. Austin, this is fun. And I love chatting with you. The way we end these podcasts are, I'll freeze it for you. 
What are you most excited to see built over the next six months? And what are you most excited to see built over the next six years? Over the next six months, with some of the regulatory regimes rolling out, there's two things in the crypto space I think we badly need that haven't existed. One is I do think we're going to get an interest-paying stablecoin somewhere. Maybe it'll be US dollar, maybe it'll be euro, maybe it'll be something else. But I think something that will be a properly regulated, properly disclosed, proper economic alignment stablecoin will be created somewhere. And I think that could really be the start of V2.0 of bringing finance into crypto. The other thing is I think somewhere somebody is finally going to figure out we need to solve the settlement problem. People talk about atomic swaps, but that's not really the way crypto trades. You still have a ton of OTC people and exchange risk. And just having an actual equivalent of a clearing company where it's like, guys, can we just get a smart contract where like I'll send USDC and you send ETH. And when both of the pre-agreed amounts are in there, it swaps them to our wallets. Or if that doesn't happen within a pre-specified amount of time, it just spits it back. We need to build something that gets rid of the settlement risk so that when there's a bankruptcy or when things fall apart, we don't have all these problems down chain, not just from having lent the money, that's fine. But coincidentally, I had money on the platform at the wrong time and got screwed. These are fixable problems. And I think people are finally taking that seriously. And what about six years? Okay, now you're really twisting my arm. Who six years ago in crypto would have said we're where we are right now? Six years from now, we probably have like fully deployed identity on chain that people could use for verification in a way that's maybe legally understandable. We probably have legislation at least somewhere in the world where a smart contract can be your legal contract with like force of law behind it so that actually now reporting legal systems onto the blockchain, that'll be really interesting to me. There will probably be a whole bunch of largely failed CBDC experiments because those things don't work the way people think. And I'm not sure there's going to be as much demand for them. So that'll be entertaining to watch. And then I'll predict there's probably at least a trillion dollars of stable coins out there at that point. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for the time. Excellent. Thank you very much. This was quite fun. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 